Our psalm this morning is found in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. Our prophetic lesson for this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. And Father, as we gather around your word and all of your promise to us, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. It is good to be back with you after a few weeks away and as we prepare for the fall and all things that will be beginning and kicking off and launching next week as our fall ministry calendar gets rolling. So please be paying attention over the next few weeks to announcements and remind your friends and those who are out still on vacation just of everything getting back going uh, because inevitably whenever we end someone or a multiple people uh, show up and then when, when we start people don't quite recognize that we've started everything. So next week is the official start if you have a Bible, uh, you may find it helpful to turn to Psalm 46, and because I am just coming off vacation, I'm going to change the sermon title from A Refuge in Uncertainty to something simpler, A Refuge in Trouble. As I got further into the sermon this week after the bulletin was printed, I realized that I just needed to focus on what the passage said itself, that God is a very present help in trouble. 
Psalm 46 is famous. It's famous for two reasons. One is that one of the verses, be still and know that I am God, is perhaps one of the favorite evangelical verses. We find it on posters with beautiful scenery of a sunset across the ocean or a sunrise over the mountains. Be still and know that I am God. We're familiar with the verse. The psalm is also famous because during the Protestant Reformation, it was a particularly powerful psalm that was sung amongst the Protestant reformers. Martin Luther was a German Protestant reformer who wrote a poem paraphrasing Psalm 46. He was in the middle of great distress. He was under tremendous duress because of the political pressures coming out of the Church of Rome, pressing in upon the little German empire in which he lived in. And so Luther, in all the distress, found Psalm 46 to be a safe haven, a place that he could hide. The poem, of course, is famous. It's been translated into English. It's the song, the hymn that we sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We know it well. It celebrates God being a strong and secure place for us in which we can hide as he has shown himself to us in Jesus Christ. Scholars have, of course, gotten taken up with this hymn by Martin Luther in Psalm 46, and they wanted to identify and locate very precisely what were the circumstances in Luther's life that inspired the writing of this great song, of this great hymn of the church. There are great debates and thousands of pages. Much ink has been spilled as people have discussed what is the exact location in Luther's life where he wrote this. That discussion has somewhat overtaken Psalm 46. The psalm becomes somewhat of a historical artifact. It belongs to the Reformation, and much of the discussion of it today is locked up in what did this mean back then and there, somewhere in the history of the church. It's a historical object, an artifact, an antique. Noting the limitations of this, some young biblical scholars with a touch of learning object to this, and they say, no, well, we shouldn't allow this psalm just to belong to Luther. We should look at the historical context it comes out of. And you'll note the title of the psalm. It is a song of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were the choir masters of Israel. They were the artistic guild. And they originally composed this song. And so these young biblical scholars have then taken up the task of locating the historical circumstances behind the lives of the sons of Korah. And so you'll find vast amounts of literature, reams of it in fact, about the historical circumstances that inform the writing of this psalm. They are attempting to identify the trouble that is labeled here. What particular distress was it in Israel that led to the writing of this? But of course, that's proven quite fruitless as well because we can't quite identify the trouble. All we actually learn about the trouble is that there are two metaphors that are used. The metaphor uh, that's used are the raging seas and also, uh, or the roaring seas and the raging nations. You find that in verse 3 and in verse 6. And that these metaphors are rich Old Testament ways of talking about the undoing of God's good created order. It was the undoing of the good created order and the, and the undoing of his covenant and his purposes and plans. And so the seas rocking the mountains and the nations raging against Israel, this was where everything was threatened to be completely undone, that chaos was reigning, that the people of God were being assaulted. 
And so the people of God here find themselves in trouble. And this is where Luther, nor the sons of Korah, would ever want us to leave this psalm, Psalm 46, as a historical investigation. You see, it's not a fossil to study. It's not something to dissect in a detached manner. Rather, it's a word from God. A word from God that extends across the ages. It's not just to Israel in some distress in the past. It's not just to Luther in the political and religious turmoil he faced some 500 years ago. It's a word to everyone who finds themselves in trouble and distress. This is God speaking to us about our circumstances. When we face trouble and trials, that was the audience then and there. It's the audience here and now. And we hear from God in the middle of all of our trouble and trials, in the middle of our fears and our failures, our uncertainty and our unfaithfulness. God speaks his word to us. But what exactly does he say to those who are in trouble? What was the word that he spoke yesterday to those who were in trouble? What's the word that he speaks today to us in our present troubles? What's the word that he will speak tomorrow when your troubles arrive? What does he say when everything in our lives seems to be breaking up and falling apart? In Psalm 46, God makes three claims, what he says to us, how he addresses us. And we'll look briefly at each of these this morning. First, in verse 1, God claims that he is our safety. If you follow along, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You will then find through the psalm, in verse 7 and 11, you will find this reiterated and amplified where God claims to be our fortress, that he is with us. He defends us and guards us. And this is the all-important statement. Three times we're effectively told that God is a safe place for us. He's a refuge, strength, fortress. This is the point of the psalm, the main purpose, the imprint that God is leaving in our hearts, that this is who he is. This is who he is for you. And you'll note that he doesn't say that there is safety to be found anywhere else. There's not safety to be found in our doctors. He doesn't say that our IRAs and retirement accounts are a very present help and trouble. He doesn't say that our parents, he doesn't say that our achievements, he doesn't say that our education and how high we may have reached, he doesn't say that our social standing or our friendships, he doesn't say that our reputation, he doesn't say that our industriousness is a place that we can hide and find safety and a refuge. What God says is that our one safe place, the one safety that we can retreat to, and all the troubles and trials that strike us in life, it's in him. That he is the one refuge and strength. The one security we have when everything is breaking up. And friends, this is the extreme challenge for us. Because it's a piece of doctrine to say that God is our refuge and strength. We can confess it. We know it. But then it's something else to move from that piece of doctrine. To move into it. And to rely upon that God in the middle of our trouble and our distress. 
In verse 5, we learn that there are living waters, a stream that flows in the city of God, juxtaposed against the roaring waters and the raging nations. There is quiet repose that God offers to his people who come to him for refuge and strength. And this is the doctrine that we have to live into, that we have to apply. Because it only becomes true for us when that doctrine is tested and tried in the middle of our trouble. And typically, we want to avoid that trouble. But we're promised by Jesus that we will have trouble, and we will also have his presence. And so we have to learn to look to him for refuge as the chaos roars and as the nations rage, as chaos swirls around us. This is when we experience God as a fortress. And so the truth must descend from the head down into the heart and become an experiential and lived reality for us. Just this week, I was talking with a good friend who's one of these overly theologically educated people. He has degrees that uh, are enumerated uh, to a long list. And he's in the middle of a job transition. There's been great uncertainty in his life, and God has provided for he and his family, but now he's enduring one of those things we call a move. And so he's trying to sell homes in one place and purchase one in another place and have his children land in school. And as we were talking, I found myself just listening as he announced all the uncertainties of his present existence, and he didn't know how it was all going to work out. I was quiet as he finished, and then he said, I guess the doctrine of providence is only good if you can work it out and live it. (laughs) And he had diagnosed himself. And friends, that's the way it is. A doctrine of God, who is our refuge and strength, is only good if we can actually apply it. We can know all that we can about God, about who he is, about who he claims to be. But unless in the middle of our trouble, in the middle of our trials, we then test that and apply it, that we find him to be that one safety, that we don't look to all those other things that we are so prone to, to put our weight on, those things that give us confidence. But if our one confidence is in him, this is what it means to know God as refuge, to know God as strength. This is the first claim that God makes. Now, the second one we find in verses 4 through 7, God claims to be with us and for us. This is the line that's repeated several times, but in verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. In verse 5, God is in the midst of her. He shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. This, of course, is speaking historically about God's dwelling with the people of God that he had set apart by his covenant. As we look back in the Old Testament, you find that the dwelling of God is a very important and essential theme. God began to dwell with his people, and the first dwelling that we have identified is the dwelling in the tabernacle, which was a movable tent in which the people of Israel journeyed through the desert on the way to the promised land. And then we find that God began to dwell at a shrine in Shiloh. And then as the story progresses and unfolds, God dwells, a real dwelling in the temple in Jerusalem. And that's what Psalm 46 speaks of, God dwelling with his people. He dwelled with them in order to be for them. He was their defender and their shield. They were to serve him in that temple and then go out into the world as his servants. 
It was there that he heard their prayers. It was there that God forgave their sins through the sacrifices. It was there that through all the shadows of the Old Testament, they learned to look to Jesus. But then as the story unfolds further, as the pages of Scripture progress, we find a fixed dwelling of God. The Gospel of John begins in this way in verse 14. Listen carefully to the words of what he says here. And the word became flesh and dwelt, and that could be translated tabernacled, among us. That God took on a surprising shape and form in his dwelling. He took on the presence of a person, of a human being. Jesus then goes on to explain in the next chapter that he is the temple emphatically claiming that he is the dwelling of God amongst human beings. He is the dwelling of God on earth. And he dwelled among us. He entered into our trouble. He completely identifies with us in every way. He took up our cause. He acted on our behalf, dying on the cross. And he does so that he can open the way to God for us. That's what the dwelling of God accomplishes. God is with us, among us, identifying with us in order to be for us. And in the middle of trouble and trial, this is one of the most essential things for us to know and to believe and to hold fast to. That God is with us in order to be for us. That he has done everything to secure us as his children and to make us his own. And he has only our best intentions at heart. Because in the middle of trouble, isn't this exactly what we doubt? Isn't this the chief struggle that we have? To believe that God hasn't forsaken us? We struggle to believe when providence has a frown on it. We think that God doesn't love us. We think that God is somehow punishing us. We think that everything is coming undone. But God's claim is, in the middle of trouble, that he dwells among us and that he is for us. And though we may not understand all of his works and all of his ways, that he has not forsaken us. And the chief exemplar of that in Scripture is this fascinating statement that the glory of God dwelled amongst human beings because God has been historically for us in Jesus Christ. He has done everything to secure us as his children. And we desperately need him in the midst of that trouble and we need that seal. We need that guarantee. We need that truth imprinted on our hearts. And so he has to be with us in order to be for us. And we turn to him as a fortress. Now the third claim, final claim of the psalm, we find in verses 8 through 11. And God's claim here is that he will accomplish his purposes. Follow with me. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There's an invitation here. It's actually two invitations. You find it in verse 8 and then once again in verse 10. 
where we are invited to contemplate or to meditate upon the ways and works of God. And specifically, we're invited to meditate on something that is yet to happen. We're invited to meditate on something that is in the future. We're invited to peer into the telescope of time, into what God's great purposes for his polluted and broken creation is. And we find what those purposes and plans are. Verse 9, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Because the great future of this world in which we live in is not for us to be whisked away where we have heavenly chariots and we're ghosts and playing harps on a cloud. That is not what God has envisioned for you. He has something far deeper. And what he says is that mind cannot imagine, nor has the eye seen it. But what we know, it is a physical world that God raises from all of its pollution and all of its corruption. And what he invites us to here is to meditate upon that, upon the great day where the weapons of warfare will be built, bent into plowshares, where the violence of humanity, where all of our corruption, all of our sins, and all the secret things that we've done that no one knows, all of it will be forgiven and forgotten and scrubbed clean. And creation will be made right and it'll be whole. That's what God invites us in the middle of our trouble, in the middle of our trials, to meditate on. And so you ask, well, why in the middle of trouble? Does he invite me to meditate on the future? Several months ago, I went into my daughter's room to tuck her into bed. And she's gotten into the habit of reading before she goes to bed. And she had a new book that evening. And so when I walked into the room, she was at the end of the book. And I asked her, I said, what are you, what are you, what, have you already read the whole book? And she closed it very quickly and gave me a little grin and tried to move to the next subject. And then it was very apparent what had happened. She had learned this from her mother. She was reading the end of the book. She read the first couple of pages, got the characters' names, got the basic tension, the drama that was going to then unfold itself all the way to the end, and then she went to the end. She had to know how it resolved before she had read the book. Now, I've never read a book like that, never really understood it. But I also see this profoundly biblical. My daughter's perhaps a better theologian than I am that we're invited by God to know the end. We don't know the middle. There are lots of twists and turns to the narrative. Things that we don't understand, things that escape us, things that don't make sense. You can list those out about your life, but what you are invited into is the sure and certain purposes of God that he will not fail to accomplish. He will not fail to take all of the things that seem to be evil and seem to be wrong, and he will not fail to take those and use them for good. That is his claim, and that's his promise to you. And in the middle of all the trouble and the trial, we are to take that great claim and to meditate richly upon it. We're to think about all the glory that is to come. Because God's dwelling was fixed in Jesus. But it also isn't the final way that he will dwell. Yes, Jesus will be in bodily form among us. But John tells us in the book of Revelation, if you turn with me to chapter 21. 
Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. It's the heavenly city when it descends and the earth is remade and renewed. And everything is made right. The dwelling of God with people. Everything come correct. In the middle of your distress, this is the vision that you need. Knowing that your God will not forsake you, he will not fail you. That in the twists and turns of your life, God knows them all, and he's working it towards your good. So friends, in all your trouble, each of us have it. It's unavoidable. It's part of our fallen and broken world. Know that he's your one safety. Turn to him, a very present help in trouble. Know that he won't fail at any of his purposes. And know that he has chosen to be with you and for you in Jesus Christ. And he will be with us once again in that great day of consummation where everything's made right. Trust the God who's your refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Let's pray. Father, we recognize all of our weakness. We know our trouble and we acknowledge our despair. And yet even in the midst of that, rather than drinking at the living waters of the river that makes glad the city of God, we choose our own misery. Help us to find you to be a refuge and strength, a help to us in trouble. Teach us to do that. Teach us to take up the invitation to come and to meditate upon all your works and ways in the future. And may that steady us in the present. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.